Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney. This week we're tackling your science questions. Coming up, can animals feel guilt? What is dark matter and why can't we see it? And could drones be used to detect landmines? Find out how. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. We do have a fantastic panel joining us today from across all the scientific spectrum. We're joined by Andrew Ponson from UCL. He's an expert in the mysterious world of dark matter, but can answer pretty much anything about cosmology or physics. Happy to put him to the test. We have our naked scientist, Ginny Smith. She's interested in unlocking the secrets of the brain. We're joined by Max Gray. He's a PhD researcher at the University of Cambridge in zoology. He can field any questions relating to animals. And we're also joined by Peter Cowley. He's a tech Investor ready to enlighten us about all things technology. And of course, we're joined by the erstwhile naked scientist himself, Chris Smith. He's a medical doctor, but can probably answer just about anything you can throw at him. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, our very first question comes to us from Katie Marsden. So, hi, Katie. Hi. Hello. What is your question? Um, I was wondering if animals could feel guilt. This sounds like a question for Max. I know that my parents' dog looks very guilty when it's done something bad. Can animals feel guilt? Um, Hi, Katie. So it's interesting that you mentioned dogs uh, because there there was a news article in The Telegraph about this quite recently, um, a few weeks ago now, asking exactly that question, which is, do animals feel guilt, specifically dogs? And the answer is no, essentially. They really just don't care. Quite a lot of people have done the research (laughs) specifically into dog guilt because people do look at their dog when it's done something bad and they see that sort of... It's called a hangdog expression. Um, So people have tried to tease apart whether or not this actually happens. They've actually done an experiment that shows no evidence of dogs feeling guilt. How do you Um, do that? How do you test whether a dog really does feel guilty? Well, they use the owners of the dogs to assess whether or not the dog was displaying guilt that you know, could be subtle, so they used the owner to, as a judge. And so they did this by putting them in an experimental environment. They gave them biscuits. The owner trained the dog not to eat the biscuits, so the dog knew it wasn't supposed to eat it. owner left the room, and then the dog was either allowed to eat the biscuit or the experimenter took the biscuit away. So when the owner comes back into the room, the biscuit is gone, and they look at the dog. The, the owner then has to say, does this dog, did it eat the biscuit? Did it not? Is it guilty? They can't tell. They don't know. So not only do dogs probably not feel guilt, but when you think your dog looks guilty, that's all in your mind as well. However, it's possible that other animals could feel guilt. Dogs aren't that bright. There are other more intelligent animals out there. I reckon cats wouldn't care and would kill you as you sleep. Yeah, dogs could maybe feel guilt. Turns out they don't. Cats, why would they? (laughs) Dogs have owners, cats have staff, don't they? Does that answer your question, Katie? Yes, it does. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks very much. That is a fantastic question. Okay, let's have a question for Andrew. Let's kick off. Let's let's kind of go deep into the world of dark matter. So Stephen Cornish on Facebook has asked a question. He says, dark matter, it's invisible to the naked eye, but has no one exhausted using different ways of viewing it, such as infrared, ultraviolet light? So maybe if you could explain very briefly what is dark matter and then why can't we see it? Oh, yeah, let's, we're starting with yeah. the deep stuff. Yeah, no, right? that's a uh, nice, so, nice, neat, short question. I mean, dark matter is this extra stuff that we think has to be in the universe. We, we really can't make sense of what we do see out there in the universe without supposing there is some extra stuff that we can't see. 
And and the reason that we think it's got to be there is by watching the way that stuff moves around, perhaps most famously, the way that stars move around inside galaxies, they kind of were around inside their galaxies really fast. And that tells us that something has to be making them were around that fast. We think it's the pull of gravity. But the the pull of gravity just wouldn't be strong enough uh, from the stuff that you can actually see directly. So we suppose, okay, there must be some extra stuff there that we we just can't see. This is basically the stuff that makes the maths of the universe work. You know, this this must be something balancing it up and you assume that's dark matter. Exactly, yeah. And and I mean, galaxies are just one example, I should say. You know, there are a load of examples where this extra stuff, you know, about five times more stuff than we can actually see, it just makes everything balance up much better. So why why can't we see it? I mean, clearly it's dark. So how how would you see it? Right, well, people have tried in many different ways. And so, to you know, the, the question I think was asking... Have we exhausted all the ways of doing <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, and I suppose the, the short answer is no, we haven't actually exhausted all the ways. Um, we've looked pretty damn hard, though. We've looked in many, many different types of light. So you have things like infrared light, microwave light, you have ultraviolet light, you have all these different types of light. Uh, and we have looked in in all of those to see if we can see it. And the answer is pretty uniformly no. But if our theories about what is dark matter are correct, and and we do have some ideas about what it might actually be, then perhaps it should actually turn up. Occasionally, you might be able to see it in the form of gamma rays. So gamma rays are a very, very high energy type of light. Uh, That's where we think the best place to look is. And people have been trying to do this experiment. There are gamma ray telescopes, which you can look into space with. And they particularly look at the centre of our galaxy, where we think there's a big concentration of dark matter. Weren't people building a a big dark matter detector deep underground, though, Andrew? The rationale being that if you build it a long way underground in, say, an old gold mine kilometres down, the overlying rock is going to filter out lots and lots of radiation that might fool you into thinking you're detecting dark matter, making it easier to spot. Right. That's absolutely correct. That's what we call direct dark matter detection. So that's that's trying to find the actual particles, the bits and pieces that actually make up dark matter as they come through the Earth. But when we look in gamma rays, we're trying to see uh, uh, what we call dark matter annihilation. So these particles actually colliding with each other and turning into energy in the form of light and this very high energy light. And we're looking to see that using these gamma ray telescopes. But uh, presumably to answer our questioner, no one's seen it yet. Nobody's seen it yet. They think some people say maybe we've seen hints, but there's certainly nothing that everyone agrees on. Tricksy stuff. Um, I've got a really great question. This is from Danny Farrelly. This is for you, Peter. And um, I'm sure some people might have seen this done on on YouTube or something like that. So there's a myth, or maybe it's not a myth. If you put your, your car fob, you know, your kind of car key to your head... It expands the locking and unlocking range of your car when you you press the button. I thought you were going to say expand your mind. (laughs) So I've tried this and I couldn't really get it to work. But Danny has apparently tried this and it works. And he says, why does this work in capitals? And would it work for other things? So does this work and what's Um, going on? I haven't tried it myself, but I've asked a number of people. And as you say, if you go onto YouTube, you'll find Clarkson, for instance, trying it a few years ago. So there's no doubt it does work. Why does it work? Now, there are two potential uh, ways of looking at this. One is that it's a technical one, which is the uh, cavity, which is usually your head, say, or your chest, is acting as either a a resonator of some form at the frequency that it's sending out, or it's acting as a ground plane. So 
and there is quite a lot of evidence that might be true. But if you look also a bit deeper, it may just simply be that you're raising it higher up. It's further from the ground, and therefore the distances. And so there's no direct proof of either of those being correct. See, that's your problem, Kat. You're yeah. a little bit close I to the am, ground. I am there. too close. Or, alternatively, my <laughs> head is so full of brain that that's why it doesn't... It's attenuating. Yeah, yeah. As you point out, the, the transmitted power from a little keyless remote is massively less than a mobile phone. So you're not actually endangering your brain cells in, in doing this. So. It's good to know. Um, OK, Chris, let's go from a question for you from Thomas Grieg. Um, and his question is, how do the bacteria, say, in live yoghurt, you know, these kind of good bacteria yoghurts, or uh, a transfusion, which we've talked about on The Naked Scientist, so that's when we put kind of uh, bacteria from people's guts into other people. Or an impusion. Uh, an impusion. How do these bacteria survive in the stomach? Stomach's incredibly acidic, so how do the bacteria in your friendly yoghurt make it? Well, the evidence is that they do make it, and people have done a lot of studies to prove this. The way they've done this is you feed people with having established a baseline of what's already in their guts genetically, you feed them some of these probiotics, you then collect samples that are leaving their body, and again, you can either try to directly culture or you genetically interrogate by getting DNA out of the poo what's growing in there, and you can prove what the lag time is when these bugs turn up and how long they dwell in the body after you've eaten them, and you can prove, therefore, that they must be surviving because they're going in coming out but then they're also hanging around for a while afterwards so that proves it works how do they survive well some of them are pretty tough and uh, they are actually known as acidophili they are lactobacilli they actually eat lactic acid to produce an acid environment and as a result they are actually quite well adapted to surviving in acid and if you eat them with food and with glucose they tend to survive much better than if you just eat them on an empty stomach. So the evidence is if you eat these things regularly, they will make it through, at least a proportion of them will, and these bugs grow fast. And as a result, even if a few get through, they're still going to grow and colonise, and we think, therefore, they've got the potential to change the environment of your intestine in a good way. So they're basically just pretty nailed hard. Yeah, um, but in a good way, because they, <laughs> they will actually help to rebalance your intestine, because part of the, the whole story about your microbiome is that there are more bacteria living in you and on you than there are cells in your entire body. There's maybe 100 trillion cells that are you. There's probably 100 times that many cells that are bacteria living in you. There's probably two kilos of bugs living in your gut, just bugs. If we filtered everything that comes out of your gut, then uh, actually you'd find there's probably two kilos of bacteria in there. Nice. And um, Yeah, very nice. And actually, they, they do a very good job of keeping you healthy. They eat your food for you, they pass on the results of what they digest and they therefore bring to the table a microbiological metabolic knife and fork that you haven't got in your own cells. They can break stuff down and make stuff you haven't otherwise got and they feed it to you. And if they go out of kilter, your body is deprived of this source of energy, this source of, of chemicals, bio, biochemicals and also some vitamins. And so rebalancing that keeps out the bad guys and keeps you ticking along with a supply of the right sorts of chemicals that your body's adapted to need. Well done, the microbiome. A question for you, Jenny. Um, I, I love this question. It's from Dominic Parker. It's about that whole pub quiz. He says, how is it that you can be told a fact and kind of know that you knew it, but not be able to retrieve it at the time? So, you know, in a pub quiz, when you're like, I, oh, God, I, I know, and then you can't think of the answer, and then someone says, oh, of course, it's, you know, Kylie Minogue. And you oh, I knew that. What's this? Well, there's actually probably two different things going on there. So the first one is what we call the tip of the tongue phenomenon, which is this, this idea 
idea that you can have something in mind and you feel like you know what it is, but you just can't quite retrieve it. And it's really, really common and it can be more common um, in older people. It's more common if you get tired. And that all suggests that there's something that's not quite working properly in your brain. We lay down memories and they're stored, but then to access them, we need to activate the neural pathway that was laid down. And sometimes that can be difficult. We're not quite sure why it does sometimes go wrong. But so one theory is that the tip of the tongue phenomenon happens when the answer is in your brain and you just can't retrieve it. There's another idea which actually gives you a little bit less credit, which is that you don't actually know it. You just think you do. So it could be that something in the question itself has triggered this sense of familiarity. And then you misattribute that to you knowing the answer. And actually, it wasn't even in your brain to start with. So we're not sure which one of those is true. The second part of the question is that feeling of, oh, of course, I knew that. Again, that's a nice little trick that our brain plays on us. We like to think that we're clever and we know a lot of things. Chances are you never knew it was Kylie Minogue. It's much easier to recognise things than it is to recall them. So it sounds about right once it's been said and that sense of familiarity of, oh yeah, that sounds plausible. Your brain can misconstrue that and make you think that you actually knew it. Chances are you didn't. And we'll we'll leave it as an exercise to the listeners to work out if the answer is Kylie Minogue, what was the question? Tweet us at Naked Scientists <laughs> or find us on Facebook. You're listening to the Naked Scientist Q&A special with Kat Arney. And we have a question in on the phones now. Hello. 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 What I was wondering is, is English the most compressed language you can get? Because I've noticed I watch a couple of programmes on a Japanese TV-based channel and uh, the subtitles is up there a lot longer than what you would normally speak at the speed that we do. And we'll say there's about half a dozen or so words and they seem to carry on forever. So so it's basically, is is English a very efficient language? And, uh, I noticed a lot of other foreigners seem to speak much faster than the English do as well. Ginny, you got an idea on this? Yeah, so with the speed thing, that's actually an illusion. If you ask someone who speaks another language, they'll say that they think English people speak very quickly. And that's because our brains actually segment words as they're being said. If you look at a recording of someone speaking a sentence, you'll notice that there actually aren't that many gaps. And where there are gaps, they're not always between words. But we hear gaps. But that is just something that our brain is doing. So when you're hearing a language that you're not familiar with, your brain isn't putting those gaps in. And it makes it sound like they're talking 19 to the dozen. Actually, they're not talking any faster than I am now. It's just because you don't understand them. I don't know. We do get quite a lot of emails. A lot of people in America write to me and say, you guys speak really quick on your programme. You need to learn proper English. <laughs> I, yeah, I really do. My mother's always like, slow down, dear. You speak far too fast. It's also proportional to coffee intake. And in my case, certainly. The more coffee I've had, it, it can get quite fatiguing to listen to myself back again afterwards. You think, gosh, I have had rather a lot of coffee. In terms of whether or not the language is compressed, though, in terms of being linguistically efficient, what do we think about that? Because certainly I know compared with German, for example, a lot of management meetings in German companies, they are held in English because they have found actually in typical German efficiency terms, they can save a lot of time by not actually speaking in their own language. And it's also the scientific language, isn't it, English internationally? I think that's really fascinating. I mean, German words are these enormous composite words, certainly in a language like that, where you have uh, 
Forschung Gemeinschaft instead of research. Uh, that's definitely English is more efficient. But uh, yeah, if any linguists are listening and they've, they would like to tell us what is the most efficient language out there, that would be great. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or email chris at thenakedscientist.com or go and find us on Facebook. Here's a question for you, Max, from eight-year-old Victoria Lakota. And she says, why don't spiders get caught on their spider webs? The answer is that they get caught a bit, but they're very good at getting out of it. Essentially, um, what is it, what is it in a spider's web then that's making it sticky? Tell, tell us about the, so the, the spider the web. The web itself, each the, the strand of silk that uh, the spider creates to make its web out of, is coated in a sticky adhesive Glue. goo. Let's call it. I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it's made up of, but it's kind of a, a, a thick liquid that that sticks to the silk, and that's what makes it sticky. And the spider itself is very well adapted to avoid getting stuck in its own glue. But the interesting thing about this, when I went to research this question, is that it's only been figured out relatively recently. The paper this is based on was only published in 2012, so we didn't really know for quite a long time. So up until then, people just assumed that spiders had these like magic non-stick feet? Probably. The cool. assumption was that their feet are covered in a sort, some sort of anti-adhesive <laughs> oil or something. It's actually, that's only one of three separate things that spiders use to avoid getting stuck in their own webs. The second of which is they have a really clever structure on all of their legs, are covered in tiny, tiny little hairs, uh, which has a dual effect of, firstly, um, just reducing the surface area that ever actually touches the web in the first place. Uh, so there's less to stick to on a spider's leg than, say, on a fly's leg. Uh, but also they're very, very thin and they all these tiny little hairs come to a very fine point. And so when the glue does get stuck to them, the, the oil that those hairs is coated in cause it all to run down to the tip and then it just drops off rather than sticking to that hair at all in the first place. So why haven't the insects evolved the same trick? They don't spend as much time in a in a web. I suppose it's a once in a lifetime yeah. experience. How many insects manage to escape the web to reproduce yeah. and and contribute their genes and to the next that generation? Figure that one out aren't really going to do very well in, Not in the long so term. So much, no. Great question, thanks, Victoria. Um, Ginny, it's time for some news. What have you seen in the news this week? Well, this week the Rugby World Cup has been going, and there's been lots of talk about that. So I've been looking at something. That that is not so positive about sport, and that is concussions. So the chief medical officer, Martin Rafferty, has actually called for changes to be made to the rules of rugby because of these concussion problems that are happening. So I was looking at, well, what's the science of concussion? What do we know about it? And what would we need to change to help prevent these things from happening? So what, what do you find? As, as an ex-rugby player, I'm intrigued. I've smacked my head on the floor a few times. you were going to say Ginny's an ex-rugby player. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm an ex-rugby player. <laughs> no, I've, I've never played rugby. But what's really interesting is we don't really understand what's happening during concussion. What we know is that if your head is hit against something or moved very quickly, your brain can effectively slosh around inside it and bash into your skull. And that's not a good idea because you effectively sort of bruise the brain. It can swell and then that can cause more problems as it presses onto the skull. But one concussion doesn't generally do people too much harm. As long as they go away and look after themselves, they can generally get better from it. What can be a real problem is if you get another concussion while you're still recovering from the first one, and then you can get what's called second impact syndrome. And that can be really, really bad news. It can even be fatal. 
But we don't really understand what it is about that second impact that's so dangerous. And we also don't know how long the gap is before it's safe for you to have another head injury. So how are people trying to figure this out? What's going on now? Well, there's lots of different research going on. Um, Dr Michael Gray from the University of Birmingham has been looking for biomarkers in the blood and the urine that might signal that you are still recovering from your concussion so that you could maybe even do a blood test or a urine test and say when it was safe for a player who had suffered a concussion to go back on. Knowing rugby players, they don't need much encouragement to uh, to pee in a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, we don't fully understand the molecular process of what's going on either. So there's other research going on at Trinity College Dublin with um, Dr Matthew Campbell, who's looking at the blood vessels and how they're affected during um a head injury. And he's been discovering that actually it might be that the blood-brain barrier becomes a little bit leaky after the brain's been hit. And that might be what's causing lots of the problems. And if that was the case, that would sort of open up a whole new area of research. So perhaps by the time we get to the next Rugby World Cup, we'll have a a few answers about how to make the game safer. Uh, Andrew, let's have a question for you now. So we've already talked about dark matter why we can't see it, how we're looking for it. But we've had a a question from Bavesh King and he says, what is the difference between dark matter and dark energy? So we hear both of these things. Are are they the same thing, different things? Do they react with each other? The thing about dark energy is it's it's got a really bad name because I think one of the most famous equations in physics is Einstein's E equals mc squared, right? which makes it sound like energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, whatever. But it it sets up an equivalence between energy and mass. So it would be very fair to think dark matter should be the same as dark energy. However, it's not. It's just badly named. (laughs) Dark energy is the name we give to something... Uh, beyond dark, uh, dark matter, we need. We seem to need something extra, even more, even more weird than dark matter, if you like, which seems to be pushing the universe apart. So long after we realised that we need something to keep, say, galaxies glued together, which is what dark matter is, uh, we then realised uh, in uh, much more recent times that we actually need something forcing it apart to account for observations like of, of supernovae, for instance. People... So this is another thing to make the maths of the universe work. Yeah, it's just beginning to look a bit like we've just patched everything <laughs> yes. up. Oh, it? there's a whole quick shove a new thing. Yeah, in. yeah. I mean, I think that it's it's kind of fair actually in the case of dark energy it is it is something that we've just shoved into the equations to say ah okay well uh, these observations have shown us that the universe is expanding at an ever increasing rate it's just not something that should happen so we have kind of crowbarred this stuff in a bit i think that's fair in the case of dark matter which is the stuff that keeps stuff glued together it's on a much firmer footing it seems like it makes many many predictions that we've been able to go and verify about stuff we should find in the universe how it should be behaving uh with dark energy we, we're much less far on more hand wavy yeah. um, and a sort of related question from joel browser uh who says is antimatter the same as thing same thing as dark matter and uh, no Oh, okay, cool. um, so, so antimatter is uh, stuff that we can actually create, say, uh, at, uh, at CERN, this famous particle physics lab. You can actually create antimatter. It's like a kind of mirror image of, of normal matter, which is the stuff that we're made out of. Um, dark matter is something else again. And although people at CERN are trying to make it, they're hoping, for instance, that the recently upgraded Large Hadron Collider might actually manufacture some of the stuff. Uh, so far, we've had no luck with that. 
Probably worth mentioning that we make antimatter in many hospitals because the way in which positron emission tomography scans work is that you have a device that makes antimatter, you feed antimatter into the patient and then where it gets metabolised in the brain because the brain is when you're doing a certain job with, say, a certain part of your brain, that part of the brain is going to use more energy so it's going to burn more particular fuels like the sugar that you've labelled with antimatter, it will then spit out particles, or you've, you've labelled, it will then spit out particles that you can see in the scanner. And uh, as a result, you know basically how your brain works thanks to antimatter. Beautiful. I didn't know that. Well, there you go. Well, Chris, seeing as you seem to know everything, here's another question for you. This is from Dennis Cooper, who says, why do people instinctively suck on a bleeding wound? If you have a cut on your finger, you're like, mm, like that. But your mouth is full of germs, he points out. So why would you want to do this? It does sound counterintuitive, doesn't it? Um, Probably there are two aspects to this. Number one is that whenever you injure any part of yourself, the reaction or the reflex response is usually to rub it better. And when you rub something better, what you're doing is stimulating the nerve cells that convey low threshold stroking sensations to your brain. And those nerve cells are wired up in your spinal cord to inhibit or switch off the nerve cells that convey pain. So by sucking on an injured body part, you're stimulating those big, low-threshold nerves with that stroking sensation and thereby blocking the pain. Number two is that actually, although your mouth is full of germs, they're a fairly unique repertoire of germs. They include streptococci. They're what we call viridans streptococci, some staphylococci. They're generally low-pathogenicity bugs. They probably are not going to be bad for you in a big way. And as a result, your immune system's pretty good at dealing with them. And if you pushed a few of them into your wound, probably not going to do much harm. Also, when you clean the wound with your tongue or by sucking, you're going to dislodge foreign matter. You're probably going to dislodge some nastier bugs that might be in there, and they'll get swallowed and then destroyed by your stomach acid. And here's the real sort of clincher for this argument, which is that every time you clean your teeth, then if you do tests on people, you can detect showers of microorganisms and their DNA going around your bloodstream. Because when you clean your teeth, you make little lacerations in your gums. Also, when you eat food, same story. When you floss your teeth, you make little little holes open up in your gums and the bugs in your mouth get into your bloodstream. And in the vast majority of cases, they're harmless to you because your immune system deals with them straight away. Your spleen filters them out. Never a problem. In a small minority of people, usually people who've got pre-existing problems with the valves in their hearts, then these microorganisms can sometimes settle on the valves of your hearts, and they cause a condition called endocarditis. But for the vast majority of people, it is not a problem. So there's the evidence that you're probably not carrying anything in your mouth that you're going to add to your wound and make yourself sick with it. We've got a short little question from Fiona Morrison for Max, who says, I was just wondering about dolphins, as I'm sure so many of us do. Uh, they have the stereotype of the most intelligent animal, but what have they done to deserve this? Are dolphins really that clever? Yes, sure. They're they're definitely one of the most intelligent animals. Whether or not you can say they're the most intelligent animal, that's a little bit harder to say. You've got chimpanzees, New Caledonian crows. There's a host of animals out there, all of which are very intelligent. Um, What dolphins and these other animals have done, so to speak, to deserve this reputation is they pass a lot of uh, intelligence tests. There are various things in the study of animal behaviour that we use to assess how intelligent animals are. Things like whether or not they can recognise themselves in a mirror, whether or not they can in some way attribute a state of mind to another animal, be it in the case of dolphins, they can actually attribute emotional states to people. They communicate with each other. Dolphins have 
names for each other effectively that can be recognized in the acoustic signals of the the click, clicking sounds that they use to communicate uh dolphins can use tools they some dolphins use sponges to protect their their noses when they go foraging in the sea bottom you're joking no they, they, they put on like a little a like sponge face mask on, yeah so they, it's like a dolphin kind of cycle helmet on, on their it. nose I'm, I'm, yeah. I'd literally nearly swore for the first time on air in 12. <laughs> you are joking. Time, yeah. <laughs> I've not sworn The on interesting air. thing about that is it seems to be the the clumsier, less nimble, <laughs> le- less adept dolphins that end up doing this. It's like, well, I might injure myself, so I'll just take this sponge with me just in case. But they do call it sponging. They call they? it sponging, Dol- yes. sponging. That is literally the best thing I've ever yeah. heard. That's, that's brilliant. Thanks very much for that question. Dolphins clever, but clumsy. Let's have another question for Peter here. Um, here is a, a, a question from Paul. He says, could we use drones to detect landmines? There's more and more drones being flown all over the place. This would seem like a really good idea. Yes, that makes lots of sense. I mean, yes, it's very topical to talk about drones. First of all, you've got to look at what a landmine is, and there's a variety of them for the small anti-personnel ones to the larger anti-tank ones, which are very small. And over the years, the they've been adapted or, or developed so that they have very little metal in them because metal is detectable with a metal detector, et cetera, which is the old way of doing it. So um, one way would be with a metal detector, but these metal detectors have to be very, unless it had a very big coil antenna, so the drone would have to be very big, it has to be very close to the ground, about 10 centimetres. Now, there's That'd no way a drone yeah. could <laughs> fly 10 centimetres and going to run into a daisy or something or run into a rock. Uh, so there are other ways of doing it. And some of these are, I mean, dogs are used, but you can't have a dog and a drone. Honeybees, rats, this is a Gambian rat. None of these work at all. There is, uh, we mentioned gamma rays earlier on. There's a gamma ray detector, but that's quite large. Micropower impulse radars, etc., and various acoustic ways of doing it. So in principle, there will be something somewhere. But the bigger question is, once you've detected it, what are you going to do with it? You know, you need you've to still get rid got of to it. go and dig it out. Well, yeah. either you've got to pinpoint it exactly in some market, or you've got to set it off. <laughs> you so, don't want to go. It's it's somewhere it's we know there, it's in that, that field. field. <laughs> exactly. Yes. There was a company who we interviewed. It was about ten years ago here on the Naked Scientists uh, in Denmark, and they have invented genetically modified landmine detecting cress. And when these plants grow on an area of land which is contaminated with trinitrotoluene, otherwise known as TNT, or other nitro group derivatives that it gives off, they've programmed into the plants, they have a genetic switch, which it causes them to make anthocyanin, which is the same stuff that makes beetroot go deep red. So the leaves pick up a lot of this stuff and turn a deep red colour. And apparently it was was pretty good, but I don't, I haven't seen any more reports since. So I don't know if it's one of those amazing stories that kind of got started and then they perhaps ran out of funding. The question was on drones, actually. Yeah. (laughs) I was looking for thinking outside the box. But if you had a colour-changed cress, you know, it's it's a long game, you plant the cress and then you can fly with, the drone, a, you know. With a simple camera system. Yeah. Although if you, it's, you launch it, a drone on the red spot and off it goes and bang. Although if it's, if it's, it's a GM, if it's GM cress, um, some, some people have issues with growing GM things. Who knows? Um, Chris, let's have another question for you. Um, this is from Ben Herman. Uh, another great question. He says, I've discovered that when I look through a tiny hole, say a tiny hole in a piece of paper, it acts as a lens correcting my eyesight enough to read. And he can also do this just by holding up his a little hole in his fingers. Um, what's going on? Because there isn't, you know, there's no glass, there's no lens here. What's going on? Yeah, you can do this yourself. If you have uh, uh, any kind of eye problem and you look through a very tiny hole into the distance, you will notice that you can see extremely well through that tiny hole. 
what you have effectively done is to create a pinhole camera. And this is exactly how pinhole cameras work. The idea of a pinhole camera, and if you haven't made one, it's very easy to do. If you get a box, cardboard box, make a tiny hole in one side of it and put a sheet of, say, greaseproof paper or white paper on the opposite inside surface of the box, you can then turn the box to look at something and you'll see an image of the thing you're looking at. It'll be upside down and back to front, but it'll be on that white piece of paper. The downside is it will be very, very dim so you don't get very much light coming in through your pinhole, but that's actually how it works. So what's happening is when you look at a distant object, individual spots of light will be coming to the pinhole, they'll go through the pinhole, and then they'll be uh, arriving at the screen as an individual spot of light. And if you do that enough times with lots of little spots of light, you'll build up a nice perfect picture of the thing you're looking at, regardless of how far away it is. Now, the reason it's dim is because most of the light coming from the object will hit the box, it won't go through the hole. Now, the reason you see blurs when you wear glasses is because your eye, the pupil, which is your own pinhole in your eye, actually is collecting a lot of light in order to make it uh, a good balance between how bright the object is and, and so on. And so when you gather lots of light, what the eye then does is to focus lots of light from a target into one place on your retina, so you see a clear picture of lots of spots of light brought together so you see a nice bright but in-focus object. The downside of the pinhole is that because you're throwing away lots of the light, although it's extremely exquisitely well-focused, it's not very bright. So those early cameras, you had to do very long exposures to get a good picture, but it would be nice and crisp and sharp without needing a lens. So in the mornings, when I can't find my glasses, because I haven't got my glasses on, I should walk around like, like yeah, yeah, this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that Just really... make a tiny hole, with right, yeah. sort of curl your index finger up into a tiny little hole and look through that. Everything will look very, very dim, but very, very sharply focused. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? The space boffins are joined by two astronauts and the space scientist who knows how to rock a beard. Who else could it be but Rosetta Project scientist Matt Taylor to fill us in on the next stage of Europe's comet-chasing mission. We also hear from NASA astronaut Katie Coleman discussing sustainability and the future of our planet and former ESA astronaut Thomas Reiter on the future of the European Astronaut Corps. Add astronomer Robert Massey and you have the latest Space Boffins podcast in partnership with Naked Scientists. You're listening to the Naked Scientist Q&A special with Kat Arney. Let's have a bit more news. Andrew, do you have a news story for us? It's almost the exact opposite of what we've just been talking about because this is the biggest camera that's ever been made. We've had some news this week about the European Extremely Large Telescope. I love the names of telescopes. It's like, is the next one going to be the really freaking large telescope? Yeah, I mean, if we took our inventiveness at making up terms like dark energy and applied it to telescopes, I can't help but feel we'd do a bit better. Anyway, it's called the European Extremely Large Telescope. Um, it's, it's slated to be ready and take its first observations in 2024, so it's still some way off. But the thing about this telescope is it's going to be almost 40 metres across. So it's, it's a 40-metre digital camera, if you like, to, to look at the night sky. And just to give you some sense of just how big that is, it's going to be assembled out of uh, lots of sort of small mirrors that focus the light. Uh, 800 of these small mirrors and each of those 800 small mirrors is sort of the size of a person so you assemble all of those together and collect you have this huge collecting area to collect light coming at you from space and it means we're going to be able to see um, extremely faint objects and get a lot more detail than we could before and the news that's come this week is that the latest instrument that's going to 
sit on the end of this camera and actually take the observations, take all that light and turn them into something we can use, has just been commissioned. It's just been signed off. It's something called the Harmony Spectrograph. And it's really going to put that huge collecting area for light to best use because it's not just going to take pictures. It's not like a digital camera that just yeah, takes yeah. some colour pictures. I'm assuming it's better than an iPhone or it, it, it's similar even, camera even phone. better than an iPhone. Other or, camera phones are available. Yeah. <laughs> at every single pixel, you know how your, your, your camera images are made out of individual pixels, individual dots which are coloured. And every single one of those, it's going to take what we call a spectrum. It's basically going to break the light down into all of the different wavelengths or colours that you can possibly separate it out into. Is that across the whole of the electromagnetic spectrum or still just a kind of a, a chunk of that? Well, it's a chunk of that because it's, it's going to be built in Chile, which is quite high up, but there's still atmosphere that the light has to come through. And that means a lot of it's filtered out. So it's just the chunk that you can actually get at, which is uh, the visible light that you and I can see, uh, plus some infrared light. Um, but it's going to break it down into that spectrum. And that means every single dot of, say, a galaxy that you've taken a picture of, you're going to get detailed, exquisite information about everything that's going on in that tiny little dot. So we're going to get some really awesome pictures. Is it that kind of telescope? We're going to see these amazing things. You certainly are going to see uh, incredible images, but you're also going to be able to boil it down into data. I mean, that's what we really care about in astronomy now. It's data. And so, for example, in one shot, you could get a beautiful image of a galaxy, but you could also tell exactly how that galaxy is rotating. And in the past, that's something that we've needed to do with separate instruments. You would need to take one picture to have a look at what it looks like and then apply a, a completely different instrument to get a spectrum. So now you can do all of it at once. Uh, get all of this very faint light collected all together and it's just going to be so exciting but it is what nine years away and is it is it the biggest telescope is it going to be the biggest in the world it certainly is the americans are trying to compete but they're not quite going to get there (sighs) because they're building a 30 meter telescope and uh, this one will be very nearly 40 meters across excellent thanks very much that's andrew ponson from ucl and now we have a caller on the phones is this john hello it's me, yes, yes. Hello, what is your question? Well, I'm, I'm very curious. I hope you've got a zoologist around. What is the most asymmetrical normal animal? I mean, setting aside genetic defects and whatever. Uh, I mean, almost every other creature is symmetrical. I've heard of, like, crabs that have one big claw and one little one. But what is the most asymmetrical, you know, living uh, en- enduring species. That that is a great question. What do you reckon, Max, as our resident zoologist? Um, so there is there is actually a very clear answer. I mean, there's lots of animals that are a little bit asymmetrical. You've got flatfish that, as adults, that one eye is migrated round the other side of its head. But um, and you mentioned the crabs with one large claw. But all of those animals tend to develop symmetrically. They they start off being symmetrical when they're first um, conceived, or when you, when they're either larvae or embryos or something along that line. However, there's there's one thing that is never symmetrical at no point in its in its development, unless you count when it's a single cell, and that's sponges. So on, on coral reefs, you've got sponges, which are generally considered to be a single like a single sponge is considered to be a single organism, but it's almost not. It's an aggregation of of loads and loads of different single cellular sponge cells, and as they form together, they form this colony, which just kind of pieces together in in different shapes and has no identifiable symmetry and the reason that counts as a 
organism rather than a colony because once they do all form together, they do start specialising. All the little sponge cells do specialise to different roles and would no longer be able to survive on their own. Uh, presumably before they get stolen by a dolphin to go diving with. Exactly, yes. <laughs> does, does that answer your question there, John? Did you think it was well, a sponge? Well, no, I would have never guessed. Uh, that's kind of an extreme. So, uh, okay, I mean, if, if, if he classifies it as an animal, and God knows they're asymmetric. I mean, I, you know, I wash my kitchen sink every night, and I got, you know, those little pores and whatever are not symmetrical. Well, there there you go. And when, when you go and wash up tonight, you can, you can think of the sponge. Thanks very much for your question. Thanks right. for calling in. Thank you. Right. Ginny, here's a question for you from Robert in Brazil. Do brains work better with cold temperatures? Do brains work better when they're cold? The first thing to say is that one of our brain's important jobs is to keep our body temperature regulated. It can't go up too much or down too much or all of our organs will stop working, including our brains. So the actual temperature of our brains doesn't change all that much as the ambient temperature changes. But if we change the question to being do our brains work well when it's hot outside, when the weather's hot, then you get quite an interesting answer. Our bodies actually find it more difficult to cool us down when we're hot than they do to warm us up when it's cold. And both those processes use energy. They use up glucose. And glucose is what powers our bodies, but it's also what powers our brains. So one theory is that when it's hot, we actually don't make very good decisions. And there's been some really interesting studies on this, looking at the kinds of lottery tickets that people buy during hot weather and showing that people generally go for the easier option when it's hot outside. Probably, this probably explains a lot about holiday romance as well. Probably, yep, yep, that could definitely explain that. And the thought is that that's because your body's using up lots of its energy trying to keep cool and there's just not enough glucose left to power your brain and to power the decision making. But our bodies are really good at adapting. So actually you're just right talking about holidays because the effect's going to be more from someone from the UK who goes over to Florida than for someone who's always lived in Florida, they're not going to notice that hot temperature as much. So it really is, when you go on holiday, you're acclimatising to that new temperature, your body's working so hard, there's no power left for good decision-making. Presumably, if you go somewhere really, really, really cold and you get really cold, that's also not going to be great either. Yeah, so again, you're going to be using energy to warm yourself up, you know, shivering and that sort of thing. But the studies suggest that that's not as difficult as cooling yourself down. But yes, if you went somewhere really, really cold, I would assume the same would happen. We've got a question in for Andrew uh, from John Dye. He says, could dark matter be the contents of black holes? And I guess by extension, what's in a black hole? Black holes are, are these things that we think actually exist in the real universe. At first, they were these kind of theoretical constructions where we thought if, if there was so much stuff packed into such a tiny space that gravity got kind of out of control, it could get to the point where uh, gravity is so strong that not even light can, can get away from an object. In the same way that I can't leap off the Earth's surface because I just can't get the speed up, uh, you could get to a point where even light couldn't get off the surface of some object. And that would then be called a black hole. But almost certainly they consist of normal matter, the stuff that you and I made out of that just happens to have come to a bit of a sticky end uh, and, and ended up in a rather unfortunate part of the universe. The, there was a time when we thought perhaps we can tie these concepts together. Maybe uh, we know we need all this extra stuff. We know we can have black holes. Black holes are very hard to see because the light can't get out of them. So maybe if we just had lots of 
little black holes floating around through space. It could account for all that extra stuff that we think we need. But today, uh, we no longer think that that could be the case. And the reason is that black holes are not actually quite invisible. There's a very subtle way you can actually see them. OK, so this means that they're not made of dark matter or suddenly we can see dark matter. Then. Uh, something so, like that. Yeah. So, so they the, must the, be made well, of something. Well, the way, the way that you would see them is if, if a black hole sort of floats in front of a star, say you're looking at a star and a black hole floats in front, then you would momentarily see that star actually get brighter it might sound like that goes in the wrong direction, but the, the, the black hole would kind of uh, focus some of the light towards you, almost like a lens. The star would momentarily get brighter. So if there were all these black holes floating around, then when you're staring at a star, you would every now and again see it, see it get a little bit brighter. And people have done very careful experiments where they've had telescopes really staring at stars. This does not happen. It doesn't happen in the real universe. So we don't think that you can have enough black holes floating around uh, to, to make up what we need in dark matter. Thanks very much. Chris, here's a question for you from uh, Mo Islam, who says, if you were able to take a paper aeroplane and throw it from 35,000 feet... How long will it fly? How far will it go? The is answer anyone... is a long time. Let's think about this several ways. One is, what's the objective evidence? Well, there was something called the Space Planes Project, and I've, I actually was doing a bit of reading about this, because in 2011, there was a project to deploy a fleet of 200 paper aeroplanes from almost the verge of space. Uh, Joel Veach, who we've actually had on this programme, he does interesting things. And one of these things he decided to do was to deploy this fleet of aeroplanes using a helium balloon, which ascended to 23 three miles above the Earth's surface, balloon pops, planes deployed, they were endowed with a memory chip so that people could find the planes, read what was on the memory chip, and then they could contact Joel Veach and his team to tell them where they had found an aeroplane. It's a bit like in the old days, you would sort of release a helium balloon. And if you found the card that had, please write back to me, I live at, on the card, then it was a way of corresponding with people before the internet and Facebook came along. They released these things from 23 miles up, uh, which is twice the height we're referring to here, obviously, or, or three times the height we're referring to at 35,000 feet. But they did get reports, having released them from Germany, of planes being recovered in across the Northern Hemisphere, Canada, America, they got some planes back. The best figures I've seen for the performance of a paper aeroplane is that for every about 12 metres it goes along, it drops one metre. But the fact is that if they did pick some up in America, it flew for many, many hours to have made it that far from a German uh, launch point. That's the first point. Second point is what's the absolute minimum we can put on this? How long would your plane be expected to stay airborne at a minimum? Well, say you are really, really unaccomplished at paper aeroplane making and you manage to fashion a paper ball. That's yeah. my level. Well, well, then we can use a simple bit of physics to work out how long that would stay airborne for. You need one of these uh, equations of motion. So let's say the equation is d distance equals... Now, you do a half times acceleration due to gravity times the time squared. Right? So we need to do a bit of rearrangement. So the distance is 35,000 feet, so that's about 11,000 metres. 11,000 metres equals a half times the acceleration due to gravity, that's 10 times t squared. So we're going to times by two across the board to get rid of the half, right? So that's 22,000 metres. <laughs> 22,000 metres equals the acceleration times, which is 10 times time squared. Now we're going to divide everything by 10 because gravity is about 10 metres per second per second. So we've got about 2,200 is time squared. Square root of 2,200 is about 50. So your block of paper would fall for about 50 seconds from 35,000 feet. So in other words, 
you'd achieve even if you made the world's worst paper aeroplane a flight time of, of a minimum of about a minute? It probably would actually reach terminal velocity. Uh, so I suspect That's it would, air resistance, I, I should suspect say, yeah. it would last a lot longer than that. You're listening to the Naked Scientist Q&A special with Kat Arney. And on the phone, we have David from Shetland. Hi, David. Hello. What, what's your question? My, my question is, do we have any evidence that dark matter or dark energy was created through the Big Bang? Or has dark energy and dark matter always existed? And there was dark energy and dark matter that was used as a catalyst for the creation of the universe or maybe even multi-universes? That's a great question. That's from David there. So, so Andrew, is, has dark matter always been here? It's a, it's a really hard question to answer for absolute certain because, of course, we don't really know, as we were saying earlier on, what dark matter and certainly what dark energy is. Uh, the standard picture would be that certainly dark matter was created in the first moments of our universe, what's commonly referred to as the Big Bang, alongside everything else that's more familiar to us. So it, it couldn't have been in any way responsible for uh, the creation of the universe because it was itself created. Um, and And uh, that, I think, is something that most cosmologists would subscribe to. When you when you start asking about dark energy, of course, it gets a lot more complicated because we're so in the dark about what it is. If you look at things like string theory, which are this kind of very speculative ideas about how the universe might be put together, um, then there can exist things beyond our own universe. And dark energy can be some kind of uh, phenomenon that, that is related to stuff beyond our own universe. Um, and so once you have that, you could start to say, well, maybe... This idea of something like dark energy, maybe it is something that is outside our own universe that in some sense you can say exists independently of our universe or perhaps existed even before our universe was created. It's really quite brain bending. What, do we have any evidence that, that the Big Bang was the start of the universe? Well, we certainly have very strong evidence that the Big Bang got things going. We have very strong evidence that the universe is expanding today, wind it back, and the universe must have been very small in the past. But what we don't know is whether there was actually a moment of creation. We can track it all the way back to, you know, the tiniest fraction of a second. But we don't know, does that mean there was a moment of creation or perhaps something very, very different? kicks in at that point we just we just don't know do you think we will ever know yes i think i think we will get better at this stuff that's all we've got time for thanks to all of you for sending in your questions and a huge thanks to all our wonderful panel this week that's chris smith andrew ponson peter cowley max gray and Ginny smith Join us next week for the first in our exciting series when we'll be packing for mars with a look at what it takes to be an astronaut The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Kat Arney and thank you for listening.